Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Wednesday Conversation. I'm Bethany Gilbert and I'm here with Pastor Bob Thune of Quorumdale Church and Pastor Chris Hemmelman of First City Church. Every Wednesday we sit down to talk about how the gospel of Jesus Christ connects to the questions and issues of everyday life. Today we're talking about the problem of scientism. We are talking about the problem of scientism. We're going to tackle an article that appeared recently in Harper's Magazine. Uh, it's written by Jason Blakely, who is a professor at Pepperdine. And unsurprisingly to some listeners, it's going to be a retrospective on COVID and what we learned from that. There's been a lot of this happening lately. Now, I think it took us a while. <laughs> Most of us were sort of like, we're just glad that was over. But increasingly this year, I've seen more and more pieces coming out, sort of looking back at how we dealt with some of the questions during COVID and sort of retrospectively saying, hey, what can we learn from that? And this is one of those pieces. I don't think it's going to say a whole lot that's going to be surprising to some of our listeners. I do think it's going to raise a question that we need to frame the way he frames it. And the reason I was interested in it is because it came out in Harper's. And I just feel like, man, this is a sort of a mainstream news and opinion and editorial magazine. Uh, you know, it's it's not known for its sort of conservative views on things, but the questions Jason Blakely is asking are the kinds of questions that like progressives don't necessarily love to ask in this moment. And I felt like, man, I'm glad that someone is willing to just say, hey, can we have this conversation? Can we talk about particularly the limits of science and what science can and can't do? And so he puts names to some things or puts words to some things that I think many of us felt the tension some of us felt during COVID, I think, come boiled down to some of what he's naming in this article. And um, so I thought it'd be fun to talk about. I think it gives us a chance to, as Christians especially, to reflect on how various disciplines fit together. What are the um, values and limits of certain kinds of um, scientific inquiry or certain sectors of learning? What can they do and what can't they do? Here's the, the overall case. Let me introduce you to the overall case, and then I'll read a few sections from the article. The overall case Jason Blakely is going to make is that what science was able to tell us and what required the wisdom or prudential judgment of politics and society were two different things. And what happened during COVID was we kept being told the science says X. And actually, when people said that, what they meant was oh, we have determined from the science that we are telling you to do X. And, and part of what Jason Blakely is saying is the reason a lot of people grew to distrust both science and authority during the pandemic is because our authorities, our governing authorities, did not do a good job saying, hey, here's what science shows, and therefore, here's the decision we're going to make about what the best intervention is. Those two things just got smashed together in a way that all of us intuitively go, I don't think you can do that. <laughs> but... but um, our governing authorities in a, and he feels like a disingenuous way, blurred the lines between those two things. And now he on, on the backside is saying, can we talk about this idea called scientism is what he, what he wants to call this. So let me read a few sections from the article. It's a long form article. And so I'm not going to read the whole thing. You can obviously follow the link in the show notes and go read it if you want to. But here's how he frames the problem. The overextension of scientific authority or scientism has become so ubiquitous that it now hides in plain sight, influencing every sphere of American life from politic from excuse me, from policing and economics 
to dating and psychology. Increasingly, Americans must contend with the confusing noise of conflicting models and theories all claiming the talismanic power of science. Like pre-scientific peoples, we have grown accustomed to the existence of our own shamans and wizards. He goes on to say, throughout the pandemic, science was used not merely to inform the public, but also to legislate policy from the top down. Who can forget those charts and graphs with color-coded levels of emergency? The facts and figures on these charts were usually scientifically legitimate, but public officials spoke as if the models could automatically trigger particular policies. If a numerical measure reached a level of emergency, science dictated the appropriate response. In this way, descriptive epidemiology was invoked to justify the closure of schools, places of worship, businesses, and other vital institutions. The first thing to note about such policies is that they are not acts of description, but accounts of the way humans ought to behave under given circumstances. And they are, like all human endeavors, fallible. It will be many years before we know which of these policies achieved their desired effects. You hear him drawing the distinction there between descriptive and prescriptive. He's saying science is descriptive. It's analyzing and saying, here's what we know. Here's what the data shows. Here's what we can describe about how this virus is mutating or how it's spreading and so forth. That's what science does well. When, when public officials speak as though the descriptive tools of science can prescribe or justify, here's the actions we should take policy-wise, they are making science do something that science can't do and doesn't do. And that's what we all felt and sort of sniffed. That's why there was so much disagreement in COVID is his argument was there was going to be disagreement anyway. No one, no one was all going to agree on what the right approach was. If you're going to close a school or tell people they got to stay at home, of course, people are going to disagree with that decision. The way you deal with that disagreement has to be to take responsibility for the decision you made rather than saying science says, because by saying science says, he says, we've devalued science. And we also led to all kinds of conspiracy theories because now people just are seeing through the reality of like, oh, if you're just going to say science says I have to do this, I'll find some alternative science that says something different. And that's, that's kind of the wild west that we're living in now. He goes on to write, for all their virtues, neither epidemiology nor social science can establish what is significant or worthy of risk and sacrifice. The sciences as a whole are impotent before this question. The assertion made by officials that the pandemic simply dictated certain policy responses was a way of suppressing underlying ethical and political disagreements. One of the things that I think Jason Blakely has a particular concern about is the difference between hard science and social science, mm -hmm. because the hard sciences by nature are experimental. We're doing experiments on the physical world and learning things about it. And he argues that social, <laughs> the, the problem with the word social science is that we give the impression that we can treat human behavior the same way, yeah. that it's just, yeah. it's just like the natural world. But he says social science always has a world-making impulse, right? It's, it's saying, here's what social science shows us, and the, but then here's what we should do, or here's the kind of society we'd like to live in. And so it's interesting that he basically wants to say part of what's to blame here 
maybe to state it more bluntly than he would, is the way we've learned to think about the social sciences. Yeah. That they can both describe and prescribe. And that that's sort of, he actually goes back to um, economics and says sort of this is, in the early 20th century, this is what economists did was sort of like, because we need to do X, Y, and Z to make the economy work. Therefore, obviously we should have this economic policy. And he says economics was sort of the first social science to blur the lines between here's what the data shows. And then therefore here's the policy that we should pursue. Yeah. The masking of value judgments and meaning judgments or meaning declarations uh, as hard science. Yes. That, that dynamic so defines our political discourse, our kind of just our social interactions. And, and that, that, yeah, this article sort of pulls back the curtain and say, Hey, this is what's really going on. Like make no mistake. What, what people are sort of asserting as, well, this is hard data, science, irrefutable are actually value judgments and value policy based on certain values. And to confuse the two is at, and I guess maybe this is the question that, that, and I don't know if he gets into it too much here, but the question is why? Is it a level of incompetence or is there something more um, maybe nefarious going on, manipulative going on? Ooh, well, there's, there's, a, there's a conspiracy <laughs> yeah, theory and, and question. That's where it's like, it's yeah, you obviously to, nefarious. Yeah, yeah. Is, it, is, it, is it? And, and I think that was one of the wrestles that I had throughout COVID is, especially early on, I'd say maybe in the first year, is friends that I would have that would immediately jump into kind of these conspiracy theories my pushback is like, yeah, I think you're seeing the right things, but I, I was more chalking up. It's got to be incompetence, right? It's got to be more just a flawed worldview and people are just operating out of that worldview and it's flawed. It's going to miss rather than, no, we know what we're doing and we're just trying to control you. All right. You're asking an interpretive question. Let me yeah. def- let me bracket that for a second because I think it's an interesting question. Let me read a few more uh, lines from the article just to help frame the problem that he wants us to wrestle with and sort of name the same challenge that you're naming. He writes, to cover questions of interpretation and significance with the curtain of data is to recruit the authority of science in a way that ultimately undermines it. I think that's interesting. Yeah, He's yeah. saying we're borrowing the authority of science to, to uphold our value judgments but doing that ultimately undermines science. This is a good paragraph that many listeners, I think, will appreciate. The difficult truth is that scientists, doctors, and other public health experts are on the same level as ordinary citizens when it comes to thinking through questions of political and ethical significance. Science offers them no special insight or authority in this domain. There is no science that can determine what is meaningful, No way for experts to quantify what values we ought to prioritize. Likewise, no one culture is simply scientific and rational. Rather, a plurality of ethical and political positions can avail themselves of the latest science. Scientism produces a discourse of mere facts that are in no need of interpretation. Politics and social life are supposedly captured in a single privileged scientific language while other moral and ideological vocabularies are muted. Where scientism reinforces hierarchies, a more humanistic and sensitive approach sees that all humans are in the same existential predicament. We are all trying to achieve clarity on which sources offer our lives meaning. These meanings cannot be empirically verified and they are always contested. There is no set of facts 
that determines the course of political life. Yeah, that's good. That's, that's very insightful. I especially like his naming that scientists, doctors, and other public health, special, health experts are on the same level as ordinary citizens when it comes to questions of politics and ethics. And that's the thing that I think a lot of people had a hard time differentiating. I remember, Bethany, you remember this too, but I remember during the pandemic when I was just trying to talk to our church and just say, hey, here's what I think we should be doing as Christians. And there was one time in particular where I said, hey, listen, I th- I'd like you, if you have you know connections with a city council member or uh, the governor or the mayor, hey, I'd love it if you just reach out and let them know that you think Christians should be allowed to meet for worship. And I had people that were like, you're overstepping your boundaries. Like you're not a, you're not a public health expert. Like you, you can't, you can't say that we should Christians. Who are we to say that we should get to meet for worship? The doctors need to decide that. I'm like, no, no, no. It's a literally a whole different field. The question of like what medicine and, and public health says is a whole different question from should or should not we be able to meet for worship. And the way the dialogue sort of flattened the questions there or assumed that we were asking the same question, I found really frustrating because I was just like, no, no, I'm saying something totally different than what you, I'm not saying there is zero medical risk to us in meeting for worship. I'm saying the question of whether or not we should meet for worship or have schools open or be able to go in a restaurant, those are questions of public policy and political and social norms and oughts. They can be, you can arrive at totally different solutions there from the and but agree on what the scientific data is about what's going on. Yeah. And I, I, I just appreciate someone naming the difference there because I think it's important. Yeah. None of us are to 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 use kind of the terms he's using, a hundred percent objective and rational uh, rational and objective in the sense that there is just bare data, bare facts that immediately um are self evident to these solutions or these policies. And, and that's just, in in some ways it's like, that's just not the way the world, God has created the world. Like there is actual meaning and truth and interpretation and values. Like it's not just, we don't live in just brute facts. Like to use, um, I think that's a Vantillian sort of, um, Cornelius Vantilla, an apology, Christian apologist. And, and I think he's, he's pulling on kind of the same, same idea here to say that we all are going to interpret the, the data through particular values and the responsible thing to do is to be honest about what we're doing and to name these two things and to be to to show our work so to speak of like hey i'm taking this data filtering it through these values and arriving at this conclusion so be honest about that work show your work and that just creates the the environment for much healthier debate and discussion but it also takes more courage yes yeah let me read you another line Some of you are going to be like, thank you, Jason Blakely, for saying that. He writes, one of the gravest errors of governance during the pandemic was that ordinary people were not heard. Instead, they were informed of the scientifically rational policy. And if they protested, they were lectured into compliance. (laughs) I think that's how some people felt. It's just like, wait, if I disagree, it's just like, shut up. You're not following the science. And I just think like people got tired of that. Like, ah. I don't think you can do that. I don't think that's actually how we should yeah. govern. Yeah. Um, you're also, I'm also going to read a couple paragraphs here that I think are important to name because they're in Harper's magazine. I have heard some right leaning people express this question. I've, I'm, 
impressed to see Harper's Magazine raising this because I think this is one of the most important questions. And I think he's raising it because it shows the difference he's trying to hold up. All right. Here's what he writes. Consider the mass protests that followed the murder of George Floyd during the first wave of the pandemic. After months of social distancing and restrictive lockdown policies, millions of people took to the street, marching shoulder to shoulder. Soon after the protests began, hundreds of medical experts and public health officials signed a letter expressing continued opposition to protests against stay-at-home orders while citing the lethal threat that white supremacy posed to the health specifically of black people as justification for these particular protests. But the protests were not a public health action. They were a public expression of an urgently felt moral outrage. The need for such expression in that moment may well have trumped the need for social distancing. Regardless, it wasn't for the health authorities to determine. Their effort to reconcile a political action of which they approved and the pandemic regime they took it as their job to enforce sent a simple message. The rules apply when we want them to. I think that's a really powerful statement because what he's saying is like, that's the example of <laughs> the science says this, but we'll make exceptions in the right sort of environment or for the right reasons that we deem acceptable. And I think that's what caused a lot of people to say like, yeah, see, you're, you're speaking out of both sides of yeah, your mouth. Yeah. And that's raising in his estimation, the problem of scientism of saying, Hey, what they should have done is just to say, look, here's what the science shows. We're going to allow this. And here's why, because we think it matters or it's important. That's a, more, that's a more honest way of going about it than to say as public health officials, because of the need the threat of white supremacy to the health of black. I mean, to use the language of health to justify that just seems like an example of the very thing he's trying to say. Let's not do that. That's not helpful. Yeah. And the, the healthier way that that would have, that debate would have went down is if it would have stayed over here in the, in the area of value, you know, kind of competing value instead of a retreat back to the science right. of like, Hey, let, let's just hold up these competing values and start to debate that it would have been more honest and more robust and more healthy but the, the moment someone started kind of retreated back to the science, it was almost like, oh, I'm throwing down my Trump card, shutting you down. You know, your, your value no longer matters. Yes. Now you're asking, you asked a few minutes of the question of why, like why, why do we use science this way? Why has there been this sort of flattening of the worlds of values or policy judgments or prudential reasoning about what we can or should do? versus science? Why have we sort of combined those two worlds? I don't know the answer. I think there are probably historical answers, but I suspect one of the answers is it's a way of managing anxiety. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just, just speaking as a leader of something very small, right? A local church, let alone the mayor of a city or the governor of a state. I mean, that's a huge role of leadership, but just speaking as a person who leads a few hundred people, right? The, when you have to make an unpopular decision or a decision that, you know, like some people are going to disagree with, it's hard to stand in the place and just knowing like, here's the decision we think is best. Some of you aren't going to agree, but that's okay. Right. That's a, it takes courage to stand in a place knowing that lots of the people we're leading might not agree with the decision we've come to. So what anxiety pushes you to do is to try to sort of backstop that with a, with a more credible source of authority than just, we have concluded this is the wisest course of action. Yeah. Right. The, yeah. If I can, get it out of, get me out of the driver's seat and push it back to the science says, or the, you know, the government says or whatever, 
then I don't have to stand in the place of courageously putting up with the fact that people are going to disagree. And so I wonder if for some of the, you know, the, the, you, there may be more sinister conspiracies or you know, like ways that collusion happens. But I think in the most basic level, you could explain this just by saying, man, we have to make hard decisions and tell people you can't leave your house. Nobody wants to be the governor or the mayor that's like, hey, Bethany, sorry, you can't leave your house. Like that's, you yeah. know, it's, it's a lot easier to say based on reason X, which is incontrovertible, Bethany, because you've seen it on the COVID graph on your TV. Based on that reason, that's why you can't leave your house. Yeah. And it just feels more bulletproof in a way or more justifiable. Yeah. No, I, I agree with that assessment. And and that was my hunch because we were kind of going through the the height of the pandemic. It, it, it just struck me as I think there's just a bunch of anxious leaders yeah. trying to find a way to sort of buttress their their, their decision-making and, and kind of minimize the pushback. But I do think there's, there's another element to this of just why, you know, the whole idea of scientism and how we've come to that sort of our epistemology yes. of how we, we treat science and use science and, and kind of combine that with our value judgments. So there is sort of a, a historical cultural kind of formation that has happened, you know, kind of as a result of the enlightenment and just the way we treat those things. So I think there is just kind of a way we've been formed to think that way, especially in the past, you know, 50 years or so, but then how that manifests itself when you have a bunch of anxious, anxious leaders is, you know, exhibit a is how the pandemic was treated. So I'm going to, I'm going to draw from Edwin Friedman here, a failure of nerve, uh, who is the person who taught me about anxious yeah. systems and yeah. anxious leaders. But his contention is that American culture as a whole is an anxious system. And that when you live in an anxious system, the there's a default to experts. Yeah. Like instead of just having the courage to say, hey, here's the decision we think is best. We're going to stand by it. It's okay if you disagree. There's a, there's a defaulting to, well, this person's an expert and because they said, and they know what they're talking about. And so I think what's happened in American culture, especially in the 20th century, this article, I didn't get into the real nerdy. <laughs> Bethany was like, hey, there's some... There's like some nerdy academic stuff in this article. I skipped all that for you listeners. I didn't read any of it. But he points to people like Max Weber and others who, um, who if you think about like what bureaucracy means, there was sort of this rise in the 20th century of this expert class of bureaucrats. And that did come out of a philosophical movement in the Enlightenment that just sort of believed that if we just sort of like expert if, if we allow expertise to define everything then we can get beyond our limitations we can get beyond our need to make rational judgments and to sort of lean on our own wisdom and we can just sort of like put everything in the hands of people who are experts and so there's sort of think about the managerial class in our society and how it's just sort of like well you just defer to the experts man like you, you know it's not your job to be an expert in that Chris. somebody else is an expert so you defer to them and so i do think that our culture uh, think about when I interviewed James Eglinton, you know, he mentioned how Bavink is sort of a, he called him a Renaissance man, sort of a Renaissance <laughs> man. Right? Uh, the way we talk about someone being a Renaissance man, it's like, or, you know, they're just good at a lot of different stuff. We don't have those people very often in our culture anymore. No. You're just an expert in a thing. And we just say, just do that thing. And so because culturally our expectation is, well, who's the expert on this topic? Who do we look to in this moment? I think that predisposes us to say like, well, in a moment like COVID, the experts are the scientists. And so we just looked at them, whatever they say is what we do. 
and some of that is conscious dealing with our own anxiety, but some of it, like you're saying, Chris, it's just a default response culturally that we've sort of backed ourselves into because of our belief that we can actually just manage life as long as we have enough expertise. Yeah. And the faulty belief in that with the experts is if I study enough, I can achieve this level of sort of rationality and certainty and, certainty and kind of transcend any bias. Yeah. And that I can kind of just see clearly through this, make an objective sort of judgment free from bias, free from emotion. It's like, that's just not how humans are. Yeah. Like it, it just isn't fundamentally how we are. You can't escape your your own worldview, your own bias. It's just, it's baked into the system. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. That's not a wrong thing. It's just something you have to acknowledge. I wonder if part of the invitation we have on the backside of this pandemic and all these experiences is just to sort of renegotiate our relationship with epistemology, science, and values and facts. Yeah. Because yeah. I think that's part of what he's after in this article is just to say, could we all just agree that scientism, the the encroaching, leaning on the authority of science in places where it doesn't actually work to do that, isn't going to help us build trust in society. It's not going to help us learn to actually value one another. It's moving us in the wrong direction. And so part of the opportunity we have is to say, okay, what if we all sort of reevaluated, hey, there are limits to what science can tell us. Science can do a great job describing what is true. I'm really glad that science could tell me, here's the, here's the, the R value and the growth rate of this virus over the last week and over the last month. And so those data points are important. They do lead to certain policy decisions or inclined to, to help us make decisions about what we should do. But it would be a wonderful thing if, as Americans especially, we could understand the difference between the descriptive work of science and the prescriptive work, which is the work of politics, the work of social decision-making. And it's, it's a more, it requires wisdom and it's open to critique <laughs> and it's not yeah. certain. Yeah. There were multiple moments during the pandemic when I, when I realized, man, the ways that our leaders are giving people, are assuring people of certainty, if we do this, this will be the outcome. Actually, we don't know that. Yeah. We can say like, based on the data, here's what we think will happen. But you didn't hear a lot of, based on this, here's what we think. You heard a lot of like, if you do this, this will be the result, you know? And that kind of reasoning is what needs to, <laughs> is what needs to die. Yeah. And in its place, and I think Christians can lead here, in its place, resurrect a good and proper kind of wisdom, right? That just says, hey, we're making the best decision we can based on the data we have. Here's what the data says. Here's what we think is wise. You can disagree with it, but <laughs> I'm the mayor, so I get to decide and here's what we're doing and yeah. and I'll listen and I'll change if it's not the right course of action. And and that's what I think you, you, you know, the reason, the places where trust was high in the pandemic, I think places where leaders tended to do that, where it's like, hey, this person's making the best decision and they're being honest about the fact yeah. that they're making a judgment call. Yeah. They're not trying to remove the judgment call by defaulting to yeah. the science. And what's interesting to your point is how the way that with this sort of vicious cycle, there's connection here is how it actually adversely affects science itself. Because when you attach, okay, here's, here's some data that gets used to support a particular policy that is value driven. Well, once your values are mixed into that, now I have to support my values. And now I have to sort of lock that data 
in sort of a, it has to stay there. It can't change. And what that undermines the, the scientific process of, hey, oftentimes we're learning, it's evolving. And, and so even the ways that the, the, the way these two things have overlapped is actually hurting hard science because so much of the values have been pushed back into that and there's not an acknowledgement of that. And it's actually um, stunting scientific knowledge and, and the freedom of exploring new ideas and, and trying to challenge certain assumptions, which really is what makes science thrive and knowledge move forward. And so it's, it's interesting how even the, the thing that we're trying to use as sort of our authority in the best sense, the best use of that gets hurt itself when we have kind of this, this overlap. And so both sides of the, the equation, if they are properly situated, that's how both of these things thrive in society and culture. And we've, we've kind of made a mess of this and there's, there's a lot of after effects. Cause even, I mean, you think about like with the pandemic, there was a lot that was evolving. Like to your point, there was a lot of data that was evolving, but it seemed like once a data point sort of got put out there and attached to a policy, well then now you can't question this. I mean, you think of like the treatments and all the discussions around how do we deal? It's like, nope, this is the only way it's going to be. Really? Like well, we've locked in, <laughs> we're, we're just done. Like the discussion's over. It's like, what would have happened if there had been a much more open-handed view towards, you know, understanding the virus, understanding masks, understanding treatment, just how much better off we would be. Yeah. Well, and you see, I mean, if we expand the discussion wider, um, you know, think about things like the ways that this plays out with therapy, not just about COVID, but just like broader, the broader world of therapy, like we've talked about on a few episodes in the past, you know, here's, here's data, here's helpful data that shows a pattern or that reveals something about how this is happening. Well, therefore, here's the conversations you can and can't have about that data. Yeah. Right. So you see this with gender, uh, transgenderism, right? Here's some, here's some things in the data. Oh, here's the conversations we can and can't, we are and aren't allowed to have with that in the scientific community mm -hmm. specifically. Yeah. Or think about the reality of same sex attraction and how some States have said, like we're, we're banning what we call conversion therapy, which is a, an interesting title to put on in the first place. But there are certain people who would say like, Hey, what if someone actually wants to move in a different direction with their life? Can we give them the freedom to do that? If they want to seek out therapy that might move them toward a different kind or that might ask a different set of questions. Are we saying that's, we, we can't follow the client in that direction. So I think you see this same sort of scientism in other areas of society, shutting down a really appropriate value debate. So just like, how should we treat this? How should we think about this? How should we engage with people who have questions about this? And COVID just sort of put a big magnifying glass on that. And I think hopefully, hopefully was a good example of we need to learn some lessons from this because what I'm mindful of, as you were talking, Chris, is like now you actually have a whole subset of people in our society who just don't trust science. Yeah. And who, if you say yeah. the science says X, they're going to be like, bull, that's the, the politicians say that. Yeah. That's not the science. Yeah. And so it's hard to, it's hard to win them back. I mean, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know how you get people back to like, oh, we can actually trust certain things about what science tells us unless we get back to the distinction between Science tells us about facts. Value judgments are require wisdom and require prudence and require, you know, human fallibility to enter into the equation. Yeah. I mean, you see this with like climate stuff too. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's another place yeah. this debate is, is hot. And, and I think we talked about this or maybe it was the article. I saw something. Oh yeah. I was in the article. You mentioned, he kind of made this little reference to kind of like ecological disaster might be the next thing kind yes. of. 
And and so he's like, okay, if that starts to happen, how are we going to make sense of all of that? Yes. Uh, so there, there's, a, there's a number of issues that are very much at the forefront of our culture where this is in play. Scientism, or as he calls it, the overextension of scientific authority. So as Christians, this is one of those things I think I, we can just be aware of. And the Bible actually, because it teaches us wisdom and because all truth is God's truth, it helps us embrace the good of science and the limitations of science. It helps us embrace the good of human wisdom and the limits of human wisdom. It helps us embrace human fallibility. And so the reason I think this is an important article for us to engage is I think on the backside of a pandemic, we as Christians need to not just sort of say, well, here's what I would have done or here's what I liked or didn't like about what my church did or what my leaders did during the pandemic. But we also need to learn the broader lesson here, which is, how do we think rightly about various aspects of human knowledge and where they have limits, where they bump up against important boundaries so that we can lead out of a place of principled wisdom and prudence rather than, and, and also so that we can raise the right objections at the right times in the right ways. So I think there's a lot to learn here. Again, the article is called Doctor's Orders, which I love the title. What a great title. Doctor's orders you will not leave your house chris jason blakely is the author he's an associate professor of political science at pepperdine university and though certainly we've had our fill of thinking about covid i do hope that some of the sort of thoughtful reflections on it and on what we learn from it can be helpful to us as we continue to try to live as faithful christians um, in in the years ahead The goal of this podcast is to equip our own church for discipleship and mission. So if you're a Christian or a church leader in another context, we thank you for listening in. We pray that this conversation might be helpful to you as you minister in your context. We love to hear from listeners. So if you have thoughts, questions, or future podcast topics, send an email to podcastcdomaha.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next Wednesday for another episode of the Wednesday Conversation.